1: Did everyone enjoy their extra hour of sleep? I should do that every week. Can't we do that every week? I want to welcome to those of you who are joining us online. Uh, each week, we, uh, we come together as a church, and uh, myself, Robin, sometimes Josh, and others, we, we get to share with you uh, a word from our Father from His Word, from the Holy Scriptures, and uh, simply known as, as the Bible. And, and the Bible is the single greatest book in terms of just from sales. It's, it's sold more than any other book uh, in, in the history of the world, and it's not even close to what's next. They estimate that uh, somewhere between five and six billion versions of the Bible have been printed in you know, nearly 700 different languages. Uh, each year, they suspect that another 100 million Bibles are, are sold. Uh, In trying to give it some perspective of those numbers and what it means, the the second most uh, or best-selling book out there is by Charles Dickens. It's called A Tale of Two Cities, and it was written in 1859, so it's not a recent book, and it sold 200 million copies. So 200 million versus five to six billion. Again, not even close. Uh, But it's a controversial book. Uh, depending on where you are. I've had friends where they they were smuggling Bibles into the country because it was banned. It was seen as a dangerous book. In 1536, William Tyndale uh, took the the original, or not the original, took the, the Latin Bible and translated it into English. And his reward for that was they killed him. They executed him because they saw that as a threat to put the Bible in people's hands. Because now, people were reading the scriptures in their own common language, and, and they started asking questions. Some things that the church had been teaching were now being called into question. And, and so you know today, we have the, the luxury and the, and the privilege to have so many Bibles available to us. I have, I have more Bibles than I can count at home. In fact, I have multiple apps. That are access Bibles. Never mind just the internet itself and web pages and so forth. And and there's never been a time where we've had so many acts so much access uh, to the scriptures. But I want you to know here at New Life, we don't worship the Bible. It's not about the Bible. And and I say that because that's what Jesus taught us. In in John chapter six, Jesus talking to the, the Pharisees, and he he says, You search the scriptures thinking that you will find life, but you won't find life there. And, and that's an amazing statement that, that the word of God, as, as precious, as beautiful as it is, there's no life in here for, for you and I. Instead, he says, the scriptures, they point to me who is life. And so that's what we do here. We, we study the word of God. We study the scriptures not so that we become smarter or more biblically intellectual, uh, but rather to get to know Jesus and get to know life in him. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, Peter writes this, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that it may by may it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter's, Peter's instruction here is that we, we ought to long for our Father's word, to, to, to study it, to read it. Because that's what's going to allow us to grow, much like a newborn baby is dependent upon her, his mother's milk. And so that's what we're doing. And that's why we're, we're studying the scriptures week after week, that we may know Jesus and his power in increasing ways. And so what we've been doing is we've been putting the verses up here on the screen uh, so that you could just follow along. And that's being kind of us. But I'm starting to wonder if maybe that habit has actually produced a bit of atrophy in our muscles. In the sense that we, we've stopped getting into that habit of, of opening up the Word of God. And that we just we read what's on the screen, and that's about it. So going forward, we're going to do things a little bit different. We're not going to put the verses up on the screen as much. Uh, instead, what I want you to do is I want you to either bring a Bible, or you got your phone, and you can put an app on your phone, and you can use your phone as a Bible and follow along. And again, I want us to get into that habit of, of flexing that muscle of, uh, of, of using our, our scriptures, using the Bible yourself. And, and so here's a great opportunity for you to pull your phone out. And the great thing is, if you get really bored, then I often offer to you just read your own passage, have your own little mini sermon. I used to do that when I was bored at times, um, and that way we both win, right? Now, people often ask me then, well, well, what's the best translation that I should use? Because in English, we have the multiple English translations. And, and I say to them, well, the best one's the Hebrew and Greek, but I don't know Hebrew and Greek. And so then we have some other options now. And, and really, every translation has pros and cons. There's, there's two major um, uh, groups of translations. One, what we're often referred to as authorized translations, meaning that they are the product of a team of, of translators. A team of scholars have come together, and they've translated the scriptures from the original manuscripts. And so this would be the King James Bible, the, the New American Standard, English Standard Version, the, the NIV, and so forth. They would fall under that category. But then you have another set of, of, of translations called paraphrases, things like the message and the New Living Translation. And, and those one there are, are not so much. Uh, sometimes they're just one person, like in Eugene Peterson with the Message, or J.B. Phillips with his translation. Sometimes it's a group of people, but they're they're taking more liberty, more artistic liberty, in uh, in writing the scriptures and translating the scriptures, trying to convey an idea and a thought. And you see that a lot in the, in the Message Bible. Where he's, he's, you know, it's not translating it, he's just simply trying to uh, convey the thought in another way. Now, of those authorized translations, I think, is when it comes to studying it, I wouldn't rely on the paraphrases because there is so much uh, interpretation baked into it. I would suggest you use the authorized versions when you go to study it. But again, all translations have value and purpose at times. Now, I joked, you know, the King James is good enough for the Apostle Paul, it ought to be good enough for us. I said that once to a guy, and he said, "That's right." And I had to remind him that the King James Bible was written almost 1600 years after Paul. Um, but you know, the King James isn't any special. Uh, there are errors in the translation of it, not in the uh, not in the original uh, manuscripts. But sometimes the, the, there's a mistranslations uh, in there. Uh, I, I like the New American Standard personally. And the reason I like to use that one is so why we, what you if you're following along, you'd, you'd realize that's what I'm using, is because it's the most literal uh, word-for-word translation. And so what they, the translators did is they just try to focus on what does that word mean in that context, and let's translate that word by word. The problem with that is it's it comes across a little wooden. The the phrasing is a little bit difficult to follow at times, and so it's not the easiest translation to follow. Robin likes the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, and that one's good. It's not quite as literal, but it's a little bit smoother. It's a little bit easier to follow. Uh, Then you have the NIV, uh, the nearly inspired version. Um, Greg likes that one, which is why we don't let him preach. No, I'm kidding. The NIV is a great Bible. It really is uh, 95% of the time. But there's some, some key passages and key ideas that I think sometimes they get, get confused. And the reason for that is they've decided to do more of a phrase by phrase or a concept by concept translation, which again, you start to introduce now a lot of what the interpreters and the translators, what they think and how they interpret that scripture for you. So it's a, in a way, it's a little bit like eating pre-tuned uh, meat. Not really a nice picture of that. So, uh, so if you got your app open with you, or you have brought a Bible, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and, uh, and we're going to read verses 11 to 15, and that's going to be our passage of studying this morning. So let's, pray. Let's, let's read. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are ma- made manifest also in your consciences. For we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this will be a special morning where, where again, you're the teacher. But not just teaching us more knowledge, more information. But Father, would would you convince us now of the power of this truth? And and maybe even it's a truth that we've heard a thousand times. But I pray, Father, that we would come away this morning with a deeper appreciation, a deeper understanding of who you are to us, of the relationship we have with you, and what that now means for us going forward. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so you see there in verse 11, he begins with the word therefore. And so he's, he's making a conclusion based on what he had just spoken about previously. And so if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 9 and 10, and we, we saw it's judgment day. And that there's a judgment that's going to come for all of us, for the unbeliever and for the believer. But for you and I, as believers, the judgment that we're going to face is not one about whether you qualify, whether you make the cut, whether you get to go to heaven or not. It's not a judicial judgment. It's rather an award ceremony where God's going to celebrate the things that we've trusted him with, the things that he's done through us and through our lives. And there, so he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, having this respect, having this awe and wonder that we're all going to stand, that we're going to be made manifest uh, before him. My translation says, but in there. It says that uh, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. I think really a better translation there would be for That we have this fear of God for we're gonna be made manifest. We're gonna be made to appear. That's what we saw that word manifest means. But he goes on to say, though, and I hope that we're made manifest in your consciences. Now, I wanna make a quick comment here about how God often speaks to us, because I think that's essentially what Paul's kind of referring to here. In in John chapter 14, Jesus talks about how he's gonna send the Holy Spirit that it's good that he goes away because he's going to send another another helper, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, he's going to bring to your mind the things that I've spoken, the things that I've, I've, I've tried to teach you, but I've spoken to you. And, and so that's what's happening now is the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and I. And what happens now is when you're faced with something or you're wondering about something or you're thinking about something, you'll have an idea that often is an idea that you've heard before. Maybe it was from reading the scriptures. Maybe it was listening to a song, or maybe it was um, uh, in a message, or maybe it was in talking to a friend. God is drawing from something that we've read or heard or thought about, but because we recognize it as coming from God, we can recognize that's how God's speaking to us today. That's a great reason why we read the scriptures and read it in large chunks is so that we're familiar with his word. We're familiar with his character. So we recognize that's what God's speaking to us. I remember when I I first started counseling and I'd be, I'd be teaching people, maybe teaching a couple about the importance of love and respect and, and how they are to lay down their life for one another. And, and then they'd come back uh, you know, a couple weeks later and, and they'd start telling me about some of the problems they were facing while trying to live this out. And, and the guy would inevitably say to me, he says, Ross, I was, I was so angry at her. I was just ready to, to lay into her. And then I heard your voice in my head, just love her. And, and every time I heard that, I thought, oh, you poor soul, hearing my voice in your head, I'm pretty sure there's deliverance for that. I mean, that's, that's miserable. And I, and I, I almost I got, I got kind of you know, un, uncomfortable with that idea. But then God began to show me that it was God simply using my voice, that it was God that was speaking, and he was using my voice. And I say that because a few more months would go by working with them. And now the story would change. They would still have some of the same issues, but then they would say something to the effect of, I was so angry, but then God said that I need a lover. You see, God was simply using my voice as a way to communicate with them because they had associated what I was saying was pointing them back to Jesus, to God. And so that's how God's speaking to us. He can speak to us in any number of ways. I really personally wish if there was an option, you know how you can change the voice like Siri and all them. Like I would, I'd totally choose James Earl Jones. I totally would. But it doesn't work that way, right? Instead, there's these ideas and these thoughts and these impressions that that we start to sense within ourselves, within our spirits. But because we've studied His Word and because we've got to know His character, we're able to to identify what He is saying and what the enemy's trying to say instead. Does that make sense? I need an amen somewhere is what I'm saying. All right, that's good. A little late, but better than not. All right, verse 12. Verse 12, he says, and again, we're not commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, not in heart. So the idea here that that he wants, he wants you to remember Paul. He says, I want you to remember me when you're you're facing these ideas or these situations because of my wisdom, my counsel that points you back to Jesus. Because I'm not trying to boast. I'm not trying to make it all about me. Because there are people that are so wrapped up instead in the appearance of things, in the performance of things. And I find it interesting that that although this was written 2,000 years ago, it's still true of us today that so many people get, get, get sucked into that trap of judging everyone by their performance. We, we see it in churches all the time, where it's all about how does the worship sound, and what about the lights, and, and is it entertaining, and, and you know, is, the, is the pastor, is the speaker really engaging, is he using cultural references, and, and is he able to keep my attention? And, and that's what we begin to get sucked up into, is, is how does the performance feel? You see, here at New Life, we've, we've kind of adopted a, a value of sorts that is very different than a lot of other churches. I hear a lot of churches, they talk about, we need excellence. If you're going to serve the king of kings, you better be excellent at it. But do you hear the law that's imposed at this point now? The standard that you need to measure up to, otherwise it's not good enough. And I think about the widow That that Jesus talked about how these, these, these other people were bringing big gifts and making a big show of those things. And the widow brought two copper coins, and that was her offering. And Jesus says that that offering was more celebrated than any other offering because it was her heart. It was the heart behind the offering that mattered. And so it's not about the performance, Paul's saying here, it's about the heart. And so we're not pursuing excellence at all. What we're pursuing is faithfulness. That you will trust Jesus as best you know how when you're, when you're here on a Sunday morning or maybe you're helping out at an event or, or whether you're just at home with your family, at work, driving a car, standing in a lineup, at, at the grocery store, that we are trusting Jesus. That's what we're after. That's what we're pursuing is this faithfulness. Because that's what God wants. It's about your heart, not about the performance. And so we don't judge a church by the exterior. We don't judge by, by, by the performance of what's happening, but rather the heart of it. So it's not how does the worship sound, but do they love me? It's not about how entertaining and exciting the message is even. But do I know I'm loved? And that's what Paul's talking about here, is that, that people had all kinds of occasion to make all kinds of accusations against Paul. We see it in, in, in some of his letters where they talk about how you know his, his letters were big, but in person he was a bit of a mouse. Very underwhelming. Because he wasn't the great speaker that Apollos and others were. But I, I dare, dare to say that I don't think they found anyone else that loved him greater. Because the heart that was behind him the heart that was in Paul. And so that's what he's trying to tell them, is that when others run him down, yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe the performance isn't as good, but know my heart. Remember my heart and my love for you. So he goes on in verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Now, the beside ourselves isn't necessarily crazy. It's it's more better understood to be sort of this idea of at a loss for words, amazed, stunned, gobsmacked, in awe. That's what he's talking about. If, 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 and maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've, you've heard some the message, heard a song, or, or maybe God spoke to you. Maybe you were out in nature and you saw a sunset or a sunrise or, or you saw you know, mountains and you were just in awe of God. And no words can convey it. No, no words could really describe what you were feeling in that moment. That's what he's talking about here. If we are in awe, if we are at loss of words, it's for God. But we're for sound mind. If we're able to communicate, if we're clear-headed, it's for you, it's for your benefit. That's what he's referring to here. But notice who he's not about or what it's not about. If I'm in awe, it's for God, and if I'm a cl- sound mind, it's for you, and who is it not for? It's not for me. It's not about me. And I think that's such a great sign of maturity. Uh, turn in, in John chapter 13. I'm going to say turn. You may be tapping, but I'm just going to say turn. I'm going to go to my grave saying turn, even if there's never a physical Bible around. So John chapter 13, in verses 34 and 35. And, and I, always, I always think it's important to understand the moment that Jesus says these words, it's, it's the night of his arrest. It's the Last Supper. It's the last chance he's with his disciples. And so chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are such rich rich uh, writings and recordings by the Apostle John here and so valuable for us because this is a deathbed conversation. This is the moment where what you're going to share is important. You're not talking about trivial things or, or unimportant things. You're going to talk about things that matter. And he says to them in verse 34, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. See, the the great truth that God says and gives to us is that because he's loved us, we now get to go and love others. And that's what it's about. God's made you okay God's loved you. He's accepted you. You're good. You're safe and secure with him. Now go spread the word. Now go share it with other people. That's what we get to do. And so I always think of this idea of loving others as sort of a a sign of maturity. When When you're a baby Christian, you really discover this one simple truth. It's not all about you. It's all about God. Amen. I mean, when you first arrive here, right, we're, we're all about ourselves. And then we realize it's not about me. I'm not the star of the show. It's all about God. But then you grow a little bit more, and you get to know the heart of God a little bit more. And you discover because it's all about God, he's made it all about you. Now he's rescued you, and how he's saved you, and he's made you new, and he's given you a gift of righteousness, and he's with you, and he's made this about you. But don't stop there. Now we go on to full maturity. Because God's made it all about you, you now get to make it about other people. Because he's loved you, you get to share that same love with others. First Timothy one, verse five. I've loved this verse for a long time. Paul writes here that the goal of our instruction, the, the reason we gather, the reason what we're, why we're, we're, we're sitting under teaching and why we study his word, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If it doesn't lead us to loving other people, well, think about 1 Corinthians 13 and it's the noisy gong. It's pointless. It's fruitless. Or in Galatians 6, 9 and 10, he says this, and, and do not lose heart in doing good, for in due time you shall reap if you do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us also do good to all men, especially those who are of the household of faith. So there will be a time. There, we talked about that you know, two weeks ago when we looked at the reward aspect. There is a time where, where it will be acknowledged, and, and so we're going to do good. We're going to do while, while we have opportunity to do good. Loving all people, but especially one another, especially the household of God. And so we, we see this idea that we get to love Jesus. And we get to love Jesus by loving other people. See, this idea here that Paul's talking about in Corinthians is, is living for him. And, and I think it's important to understand what, really what he means by that idea of living for him because you know, too often we've made for him all about what I do. And it's still all about what he does. Remember John 15, 5, apart from Jesus, you and I can do nothing. Remember years ago, I wrote an article, and it was based on three simple words. Where's Ian with the grammar here, right? It was, the three words were in, from, and for. And I said, we, we need to understand those three theological concepts, that you are now in Christ. You were in Adam, but now you're in Christ. And because you're in Christ, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, we're in new creations. We're made right. We're made holy. We're in him and we're safe and secure. And no one can take you out of that. But now that you know you're in him, now we get to live from him. We get to live from the life and the resources of Jesus Christ. That we're now partakers of the divine nature. Then when it comes to loving my wife and loving my kids, I simply can't do it. But Jesus in me can. And so I'm going to live from his love as I love her and love my kids. And in doing so now, I can live for God. So I'm in Christ, living from him in order to live for him. But too often we had it backwards. We try to live for him. But now we're doing it in our own strength or from the flesh and so maybe you have a bit more strength, a bit more love in your power, in your, in, your, in, your, um, in your gas tank, so to speak, and you're doing your best for your time, and then eventually you run out of patience, and you run out of kindness, and you run out of compassion, because it's coming from you. And then we discover that we're in a mess because of the struggles that we've been in. And so it doesn't start for God. It starts in Christ, from Christ, for Christ. That's what we get to live with. And so when we start to understand that, now we come to verse 14. And he says, for the love of Christ controls us. That word controls us is really compels. Think about like the the gravitational pull that the earth uh, is experiencing from the sun. You know, the the earth's orbit is predetermined. Because the gravitational the pull of the sun keeps the earth from spinning away. And so the earth just can't help itself but just orbit around the sun. There's this force, this pull behind it. Or, or maybe when you're listening to good music, right? And all of a sudden you can't stop. But the feet starts going, head starts going, maybe in the same tune, same beat sort of idea even. Right? You, just, you can't stop because the music's so good. Or maybe, maybe the disappointment you feel watching a Star Wars movie made in the 2000s. right? You're just, the, the disappointment there is just there naturally. You don't have to go looking for it. It's just there, right? That's this idea here. You don't need to drum up love. The love that God's asking for us for others is a love that he compels, a love that he creates. It's a natural reaction. Jesus talked about this when he talked about these, these two people, the one who is forgiven much and the one who is forgiven little. And he says, which one do you think will be more grateful? Which one do you think will be more compassionate and more loving? It wasn't Jesus. So the, the point being is that, that whoever, whoever is forgiven little loves little, but whoever is forgiven much loves much. And so what we need to do, and and if you get anything out of this morning, if you get anything out of today, know this, it all starts with God's love for you. The immense, incredible love for you. Turn to to Romans 3. I want to read a passage there to you. But on this idea here of, of the love of God, I think sometimes we take it for granted because they're so familiar with it. Especially, you know, with the idea in terms of how we've often grown up. You know, from the moment we were little babies growing up, maybe you were, you were told how special you are and how important you are and how much you are loved. And, and now when you hear this idea that God loves you, you think, well, of course. Why wouldn't he? I've been told all my life that I'm so great that of course he loves me. I mean, if he didn't, it would say something more about him than me. And so they have that idea. And it's true, you are one of a kind and you are special. But there's a a sense of entitlement, though, when it comes to God's love that can be problematic for us. See, the reality is when you and I arrived here on planet Earth, we showed up full of pride, extremely selfish, and really mean and cruel. That's how we were when we arrived here. I say that because take a look at the little kids when they're playing in the in the park or in the schoolyard. You see the bullying. You, you, you hear about the swarming, the name calling, the criticism, and, and we 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 kind of almost accept it. We just say, well, you know, kids can be so mean, so cruel. You say, oh, Pastor Ross, well, that's just because they're young and, and immature. You know, they they will eventually grow up and they'll outgrow all that and and everything will be okay. Well, let's play that out then. Take a look at society now. Take a look at society at large. At, At the politicians. And it doesn't matter which color stripe they've got on their banner. Left, right, far left, far right, middle of the road, up, down, back, forward, whatever it is. You've got some activists you got maybe some people who lead uh, particular groups. You got some parents, some in the media. And what we see is we just see anger. We see cruelty. We see meanness. We see people attacking and vilifying others while they ignore their own failures, the hypocrisy of it all. They want to be judged uh, for their own intentions, but they want to judge everyone else for their failures. So there's this is double standard going around. And you see the bullying and the swarming and the overriding rights of others is still rampant. We never actually grow out of it. I mean, think about it. We say, yeah, this, this world can be a cruel place. Social media can be such a, a miserable, difficult place to be. Why do you think that is? It's because people are, are Cruel. It's the people that make up this world, the people on social media that are the issues. So understanding that, let's read now in Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we are already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. For him, it was Jews growing up in the synagogue and the Greeks who came afterwards, but today it could be if you grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church, We're all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, which is a snake, is under their lips, while mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destric- destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we, say that, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, and that every mouth may be closed, and that all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the flesh, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes a knowledge of sin. That's who we were when we arrived here on planet Earth. And nobody, therefore, deserves love. Nobody, therefore, deserves grace. That's the mess that we were in. And so that's why Jesus came to rescue us. That's why Jesus came to save us. He didn't owe it to us. He didn't have to do it. But instead, he came and he gave his life for you and me despite being that, that, that horrible, reckless sinner, that enemy of God, he died for me. And yet, he didn't have to, nor did he deserve to. He was the only one that was perfect. But his, his heart was he wants to love even those who are unlovable. And so he rescues you and I. And it's a love of God that didn't wait for us to get our act together. It didn't wait for us to improve to the point where God saw potential in us. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves, but he met us in the mess that we were in. And it was in that mess that he suffered, brutally suffered in the most horrific of ways. And I think the more that we understand and the more that we we see how undeserving we are of God's love, the more God smacked we really are, the more in awe that the God of the universe actually loves me. He loves me more in, in deeper ways than I can ever know. I love how Psalm 139 says, if, if David, he writes there, he says, if you were to count the number of loving thoughts that God has for you, just for you, Craig if you were to count the number of loving thoughts that God has for you, it would outnumber the sand. I read that and I thought, sand of the seashore. Wow, it's a beach. It's a lot of sand. And then God said to me, that's not what it says. See, it just says sand. So yes, it's the sand of the seashore, but it's also the sand under the sea. But it's also the sand inland. So you think about the deserts and the mountains, and all the sand that's in the concrete and the buildings. But it wasn't just the sand on the earth. So you got to include the moon, and all the comets, and all the other planets, but it didn't just say our solar system. It didn't just say our galaxy, and all the universe. If you were to count up the number of grains of sand, it still would not come close to the number of loving thoughts your Heavenly Father has for you. And immediately our shame says, but, but I, I don't deserve that. I screwed up. I blew it. I made mistakes over and over and over again. And God says, that's the point. That's why I loved you. It's undeserved. It's unmerited. It's the beauty of that. And the more you see that, the more that the love of God gets a hold of your heart. I dare you to keep it in. You wouldn't be able to. It's going to come out. It has to come out. And that's what he's talking about here in in Corinthians, verses 14, 15. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, having concluded this that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live, you and I, should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That kind of love humbles me. And it makes me want you to know that love. For you not just to know about it, but to experience it. And so what we want to do is we're trying to create a community of grace where that love can be experienced. Where we can tangibly know God's love through one another. And then share it with the world. The world around us. That all would know his love. And the reality is it takes, it takes more than one person. That's what Robin was trying to invite us into last week, that we would take the risk of community, that we would take the chance to love others, but to also receive love from one another. And sometimes that's even harder. Sometimes it's even harder to acknowledge that someone else could love me and receive that love. And yet that's what community requires. It requires a collective participation which means don't wait for a program. Don't wait for a program where you're going to just be a consumer and just sit back and, and just kind of watch. That's not how it's going to work here. We need you to participate. We need you to be involved, which means there's going to be an investment on your part. But that makes sense, right? Because that's what we're told to do is to lay down our life. There's an investment, where we're going to be willing to sacrifice some things that are important for us in order that we could be a part of a larger community. And so maybe maybe that means being a part of a small group, but don't wait for one. If you have a desire for a small group, maybe that's God putting that desire on you to start one. And so reach out. Invite some people here. Maybe that's why we, we try to create that Facebook community group or we're on the directory where, where Fred's got all your phone numbers now to sell you medical devices. You know, <laughs> call some people up. Say, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of doing a short study or I'm thinking about just getting together and reading through a book or maybe we can get together and we can just pray. Maybe we can get together and just, just hang out and share what's going on in each other's lives. You can have a group, and maybe it's for a short season. Maybe it's for a longer season. Maybe you, you hang out a little bit longer before and after the service. Maybe, maybe you find a, a quiet part, maybe in the back there where all those tables and chairs are, and you just pray with one another. You, you know what I even would, would love, and I'd be totally okay with, is you show up here on a Sunday morning and you start meeting with someone, you start talking with Tim. And you say, you know what, Tim, let's skip the service and let's just hang out in the, in the lobby. i totally go for it. You know why? Because I used to do that. And I had some of the richest conversations with people. And it's okay to hang out there. We're not keeping attendance in here. God doesn't, he's not worried about that. And there are times where maybe you need to be out there and you need to be just chatting with one another and encouraging one another. Now, I'm not talking about being out there just wasting time playing pool, but actually getting to know one another, loving one another. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. Whatever it is that God's inviting you, I just encourage you to contribute in some way so that we can all experience this community of grace. Because if you don't, we all suffer. Do you realize that? You miss out on the opportunity of experiencing Jesus through you, but we miss out on the opportunity to experience Christ as well. And that's why it's so important. See, for me, getting to know Fred and Yvonne is is what's so beautiful is I've gotten to know Christ through Fred and Yvonne in a way that I didn't know before. But they were willing to lay down their life. They were willing to invest in me and build a relationship with me. And now I get to know Jesus in them. And that's what we get to do with one another. Now, you're not going to be best friends with everyone, and that's okay. But it's simply, God, who is it that you want me to love today? Whether it be a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, Tuesday at work, Wednesday at, the, at a restaurant, Thursday at the grocery store, Friday in traffic. Who is it that God wants you to love? Be open to it. And give away the love that he's bestowed upon you. And if you're not sure about it, then I suggest you ask him to give you a fresh, fresh perspective on how much he loves you. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up here. Father, I just want to say thank you for loving us. Thank you for this this gift of your grace, this gift of forgiveness, this gift of new life. And I pray that we would leave here today with a deeper, maybe fresh reminder of how incredible your love is for us, a love that knows no limit, a love that can never be overcome, a love that is always there on repeat.